Good morning. This morning's Bible reading will be found on the screen, but it will not be found in the Bibles in front of you. It's taken from contemporary English version, and it's taken from the book of Ephesians, chapter 1, verses 15 to 23. Paul's prayer for the Christians in Ephesus. I have heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people. So I never stop being grateful for you as I mention you in my prayers. I ask the glorious Father and God of our Lord Jesus Christ to give you his spirit. The spirit will make you wise and let you understand what it means to know God. My prayer is that light will flood your hearts and you will understand the hope given to you when God chose you. Then you will discover the glorious blessings that will be yours together with all God's people. I want you to know about the great and mighty power that God has for us followers. It is the same wonderful power he used when he raised Christ from death and let him sit at his right hand in heaven. There, Christ rules over all forces, authorities, powers, and rulers. He rules over all beings in this world and will rule in the future world as well. God has put all things under the power of Christ. And for the good of the church, he has made him the head of everything. The church is the body of Christ and is filled with Christ, who completely fills everything. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your holy word. And Lord, it's so hard to grasp the wonders in the truths that we read through your word. But we pray that through your Holy Spirit now, you will give us understanding and a new commitment to you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Right, I promised that we were going to scoot through some key parts of scripture uh, looking at this whole notion of kingship and how it developed and of course the main point is that Jesus is king is very different to anybody else being an earthly king however good however Christian however in line with God they may be in the way they live so we're really looking at the kingship of the Lord Jesus Starting off then, Psalm 74, 12 says this to God. You have been our king from the beginning, O God. You have saved us many times. And this reflects the beginnings of the notion of kingship in the Old Testament, where actually God was seen as king. Everything else was lower order, earthly stuff to give a bit of good governance here and there. And that's really 
where things started. Gideon was one of uh, Israel's greater leaders. He'd been brave in battle. And the people wanted to make him king. But that meant at the time more or less replacing God as the one they directly saw as their king. And this is what Gideon said in Judges 8. I will not rule over you, nor will my son rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. So Gideon made it clear that continuity within God's will meant not elevating any single person, but having that direct line, that direct authority from God to them in the way they lived their lives. Interestingly, um, great Old Testament leaders, say Moses, King David, they realized, and so they should have done, that they were completely subservient to Yahweh, the King of Heaven. They were chosen by God to serve the people, to do great things, but not to acquire glory for themselves. They knew they were deeply flawed. In effect, both Moses and King David, the very model of kingship in the Bible, they were deeply flawed. In fact, they were murderers. It shows how God can change people and use them and uh, enable great things to happen, even through flawed sinners like us. Now, the first book of Samuel is where we look a little bit more deeply at the notion of kingship in the Old Testament. Now, Samuel was getting old. He was one of the judges. His sons were judges too. He was seen as a prophet. He doesn't appear all that much, but he has two books with his name attached to them in the Old Testament. Now, in the first book of Samuel, we see an amazing ding-dong going on between the elders of Israel and Samuel. He was getting old. His sons had been pretty useless as judges. Presumably they weren't wise enough. The justice they saw to wasn't as it should have been. And the people that got a bit fed up with all this, perhaps about you know, a bit like us with the way we look at governments and leaders today. So the elders came to Samuel and said this, now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. Give us a king to lead us. Samuel took this to God, which was entirely appropriate, checked out with him, and having received wisdom from God, he went back to the elders and the people, and he said, that wouldn't work, because if they had a king, they would all end up serving him, paying taxes, and all the rest of it, and he would have the glory, he would have the riches, but he wouldn't serve them in the same way as God serves his people. So this demand was seen by God and by Samuel as really a rejection of God's authority. So Samuel went back to them. This is all in 1 Samuel 8, if you want to look it through later. And this is what we read. The people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we shall be like other nations, with a king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. Now, because free will is around and God allows free will, after all this, this stubbornness from the people, and it was the people as well as the elders, he said to Samuel, listen to them and give them a king. 
Now, the rest of the Old Testament, where the people have settled for second best in Israel, it's about one disaster after another, where the kings fell short, they were ungodly, most of them, at least they were all flawed, but most of them were pretty bad. And of course, the Old Testament is full of disasters for God's people. Uh, they were conquered, they were exiled, they, they were humiliated as a nation. And it's not a very pretty story. It's all about God calling his people back and then prophets coming along and really saying, God is not pleased. Your leaders are letting you down and you yourselves as my people are not as you should be. But the Old Testament isn't all about disasters and things going wrong. It's also about hope. And we have this lovely strand within the prophets of the Messiah to come, the great king who would come and rescue his people and bring salvation. So amidst the darkness of exile, humiliations and occupation by foreign empires, the Old Testament prophets brought this great hope that God would send his chosen person. The Hebrew word for Messiah, apparently, I'm not pretending I'm any kind of linguist, was Mashiach. If you know Hebrew, I apologize for the pronunciation. And the Greek word Christos, they both meant the same thing. They meant an anointed person, someone specially chosen to be God's representative to serve him and the people as a priest or as a king. And that's what we had a lot of yesterday in the coronation, a reflection of that ultimate kingship and the Messiah being the one who would be anointed by God to serve him and the people. There are loads of Old Testament prophecies about this, all of which pointed to and were fulfilled by Jesus alone, God's anointed one. We, um, we read this short reading more or less every Christmas. We all know it well. Isaiah 9, 6-7. A child has been born for us. We have been given a son who will be our ruler. His names will be Wonderful Advisor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. His power will never end. Peace will last forever. He will rule David's kingdom and make it grow strong. He will always rule with honesty and justice. The Lord all-powerful will make certain that all of this is done. That was again the contemporary English version if it wasn't absolutely familiar. So the coming king was a bit of a surprise to everyone when he did come. He would turn out to be the son of God, not just a, a good prophet or somebody like that. And he certainly was not an earthly warrior. This king was born in a stable to humble parents, rejected by many, crucified cruelly on that cross alongside common criminals. And of course, this is Jesus who rose again, defeated sin, the fear of death and the devil when he rose from death. He has risen, as we will see a little bit later uh, this month, he has risen in heaven 
and he is seated alongside the Father in glory. And he alone truly is the Lord of the universe, the great king before whom all other kings will have to bow the knee when he returns in glory. That is the message of the New Testament in particular, but it links so much to the anointed Messiah who has already come. A, a few quick looks at Matthew's gospel, which is really all about the kingship, the kingdom of Jesus, kingdom of God. Matthew 1, 16, sorry, Matthew 1, 1 to 16, there's this great long genealogy, this list of uh, ancestors of Jesus. 14 kings after David are named descendants from King David. But Matthew goes back even further. He goes back to Abraham, the father of the nation. This is important because the first mention of kingship in the Bible is in Genesis 17, where God makes his great covenant promise to Abraham. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you and kings will come from you. Jesus is in that line. Matthew 2, John the Baptist, when Jesus has come, says, repent for the kingdom of God is near. And then it's not just a kingdom, it's personalised. This is he, pointing to Jesus, who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah. Matthew 5, there are two more. The triumphal entry when Jesus goes into Jerusalem and he's all, you know, he's hailed as this special person. Um, this is what it says in Zechariah, one of the many promises about the Messiah. And Matthew says, this took place to fulfill what was written through the prophet, Zechariah in chapter 9. Say to the daughter of Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Humble, gentle, and deliberately went to that cross for us and for his people at the time. And finally, and here we see the authority of Jesus really being stressed at the very end of Matthew's Gospel, where he gives the great commission to his 11 disciples. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. There is Jesus, the risen Lord. He's defeated death. He's defeated everything that the devil wants to do to mess up God's world. And he promises to be with his followers until the very end of the age. A king of real authority. Not temporary authority like earthly kings, not king for a time, they die and then somebody takes over. This is the eternal king, our Lord. Finally, I just want to look at the New Testament church briefly and the coming reign of Jesus Christ. So through the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, we have the church beginning. It's the beginnings of the establishment of the kingdom of God on earth. And we read in Revelation, there's two passages which refer to the Lord of Lords and King of Kings, Revelation 17. 
And then in Revelation 19, it turns around a bit, uh, King of kings and Lord of lords. And he is coming, we read this in, uh, in Revelation, as the judge. He's going to bring to himself all true believers. All of us who believed in Jesus will be with him as he begins uh, his eternal rule fully amongst his people and all who believe in him. No greater authority than his. And he will reign for eternity, supreme Lord of king, the, the king of earth and of all creation. Now this has begun through the church. It's our role to move this forward, this move towards the second coming of Jesus and his reign in glory. It's way beyond what our minds can really cope with as are the prophecies, the sort of foretaste of all this in uh, Samuel and, uh, and the amazing writings in Revelation. But don't worry too much about that. The Holy Spirit will open up what we need to know. But we have been given here amazing glimpses of the majesty of Jesus, the one who was born in a humble stable, who went to a cross unfairly, as if he were a common criminal. And Jesus is calling us today to listen, to learn and to act in the light of these truths. The coronation is a helpful reminder about our King. In these last days, says the writer to the Hebrews, God spoke to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. The Son, Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. And that's very similar to the passage which I thought the Prime Minister read very well yesterday from Colossians 1, about the supremacy of Jesus, the great King. I'm just going to mention uh, something I had planned to say um, where we see something of the suffering servant from Isaiah uh, reflected in what Paul wrote to the church in Philippi it's that wonderful passage in Philippians 2 that our previous vicar used to always get excited about it's all about the amazing humility of Jesus coming to earth to deal with our sin and to save us and what I'd like to do just in finishing is to issue a few questions and challenges uh, for us. Only Jesus can save this world from wars, from climate change, hunger, corruption, exploitation, cruelty and sin. All the things that get us down that we see around us. And we all know, don't we, that the best leaders, the best governments around are always temporary and can only improve things up to a point. But as we read in Ephesians earlier, Jesus rules over all beings in this world and will rule in the future world as well. God has put all things under the power of Christ. So what does this mean to us in our relatively humble lives, our day-to-day -day lives as Christians, as St. John's, as the church in Southbourne? How loyal are we to our King? Are we praying with faith each day to Jesus about his messed up world? 
will we pray for King Charles and the government as they seek to serve this nation in line with the big promises Charles made to God yesterday to serve rather than to be served? I hope so. Let's pray. I'm just going to pose a number of other questions as we respond to whatever the Lord has said to us about our relationship with, with him. We sometimes just see him as a rather cuddly Lord and Saviour and we don't respect fully the majesty, the royalty that we have in our heavenly King. Are we, and is our church here, submitting to his authority in all things? Or are we cherry-picking the bits we like best? Are we anything like as humble and selfless as Jesus was on our behalf? Am I loving, trusting, obeying and honouring Jesus as I should? The response the Lord wants from us now and in the coming days is a deeply personal one. We can't look to the side. We have to look to God and acknowledge where we are. Let's just respond in the quiet now and recommit our lives today for the rest of our lives and for eternity to Jesus our Lord and our King.